The sermon text this morning is Malachi 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You know, you all have this in your bulletin. It's um, a day of fasting for us as a church. Just want to remind you of that. That is the second Tuesday of each month. And what we're doing is we're asking God, we're appealing to God for help that we as a church would be able to speak in redemptive ways to each other. This is not a simple thing. You know, it's hard to encourage one another. We're often timid or, or frightened over how to encourage one another in the faith. And so uh, what we're doing is fasting. And, and what we do in fasting is we're just reminded, one takeaway on fasting is we're reminded how much we need food as the hunger pains begin to make their presence known. And it reminds us that we need God to help us be redemptive in our speech and redemptive in our community, that each one of us is going to be useful and helpful in drawing uh, and preserving us until that final day. So a lot of literature on it on the website, a bunch of stuff on that little insert. So I, I ask you to, to join with us in that. And let's fast and pray with confidence that uh, as we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Well, let me ask you a quick, quick question. It's a serious question. And that is this. Um, if you had the opportunity, if you knew that you would have last words before your death, what would you say? And many of you will not have this opportunity. You may die in your sleep. You may die uh, surprise, accident. But some of you will. You'll have the time to think about it. You'll have the ability to say last things to people that are close to you. What will it be? What would you say? Would you say, I love you to a spouse? Would you say uh, a word of instruction to a child? What would you say on those few moments left on this earth? And to whom would you say it? Your last words are important. You know, if you're called to the bed of a friend who you know is dying, I mean, you are attentive. If you hear the, the last will and testament of someone, you, you listen. If, if someone is giving you the story of a, of a person's final moments on this earth, we look at it as callous to not be engaged, to be listening. Well, you know, Malachi is the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi simply means messenger. We think it's his name. It might just be a title. There is no father's name given in the text. There's no hometown given in the text. So we don't know. It might be a title. I, I assume it's his name because that's generally the course that 
uh, in the Minor Prophets. But, but he's a messenger, and he has a message to give. You, you notice in the first verse, in the first chapter, it's an oracle. An oracle can be translated, it's a burden. He's burdened. You know when you have something on your chest that you want to get off. He has something to say. And these will be the last words from God. There'll be 450 years of silence. There is no further word from God to the people until a voice cries in the wilderness. John the Baptist, he's the next recorded prophet, and he's addressed in this book. There's no more words. This is the last one. So we do well to pay attention. Now, Malachi preached about 100 years after Haggai and Zechariah. 100 years. His contemporary probably was around, was Nehemiah. <clears throat> it was a time, of course, that Israel had been regathered to the land from Babylon. The, the temple had been built. The walls were probably built as well. And, and they're sacrificing. They're going through the religious, the religious practices. But remember now, these people, they were growing. If you read the text, they're growing disappointed. They're a little disillusioned. Why? Well, remember, you have the promises in the older prophets, like Isaiah. Isaiah said, when you return to the land, the desert will bloom. The promise of Ezekiel, that when you return to the land, God's glory will fill the temple. You have the promise in Jeremiah, a new covenant will be established where I write your law upon your heart. You have these things, and you know what? Here they are. Just languishing away. There's no Davidic king on the throne. There is no, te the temple is a far cry from what it was. The Persians were still ruling over. So you have a people here that are really getting spiritually lethargic. I mean, they, they, are, they are weak spiritually. They're going through the motions. I want you to know that if you were to look at them, they were a religious looking people. But their devotion to God was waning. There was a distance. There was little affections for God. This may actually be the way some of you feel. In fact, a lot of people draw a clear parallel between the people of Malachi's day and ours. You know, maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel that worship is a bit of a chore for you. That you feel like your connection with God is weak. Maybe there was a burning fire in you over the gospel. But over years, it has kind of just become a flicker of flame that... that that sometimes on a morning like today, with a kind of rainy, and I think I'll just go ahead and sleep on in. And, and, and finding devotion to God is challenging for you. Well, this book, I think, will help you. It's a short book. You can read it today. It'll take you 12 minutes. That's what it takes. You can even read it twice. But it's a weighty book. Because in this book, God approaches a people who are called by his name, and he says to wake up to rouse yourselves, to look at where you are with me. It's a book where God is going to have a dispute with the people, like a courtroom. I have a dispute with you. But you'll notice the first thing he does is he's going to tell them he loves them. He loves them. And then secondly, the, the bulk of the book is in these disputes, and we'll cover four of them. He has an issue with the people of God. God is coming to speak to the people about the gap that exists between what they say they believe, but what they actually believe. And then in the end, he's going to encourage us with a promise that a day is coming, a great day, a mighty day, actually a quite fearful day. 
that will work to separate people. And that is going to be an encouragement for us to walk well. So I'm going to cover the whole book as we've been doing. It's the last prophet. We started at the 8th century. We're now in the middle of the 5th century, covering all these different minor prophets. So look with me in chapter 1, verse 2. First thing I want you to see is the way to wake up a soul to revive what God has for his people is to remind them that he loves them. That's the first thing he says. I wish I knew this earlier in marriage. You know, when, when Carol and I would get in a bit of a of crosswise with each other, it's just a great principle. I really love you. I really love you. Before you get into whatever discussion has to be had, to state that you love them is really important. And that's what God does here. Look with me in 2 and 3, chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, there's a bit of a back and forth here. So God is displaying his sovereign wisdom by telling them he already knows what they're thinking. So God will give a word, and then he repeats to them what is already on their mind, and then he responds to it. That is the way God, you know, God does know everything that you think. God knows the fears that you have, the anger that you have. He knows what you know. So there's really no point in hiding anything from him. Look what he says in two. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, God's saying, you people, you people of God, you're saying, well, how has he loved us? God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Now notice what he's saying here. He's saying, I've loved you. They're saying, I don't feel the love. Now they probably were thinking about the exile, that they were sent to Babylon for 70 years. They're probably looking at the current situation of Israel at the time, which was which was perhaps in a very difficult position. They're looking at their circumstances and they're saying, I don't see the love. And today, in today's world, in a world of kind of emotional blackmail, if I don't feel love, then you're doing something wrong for me. And they're accusing God of not loving them. But notice how God affirms his love. Now, this is, this is unique. God doesn't say, hey, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. He doesn't start enumerating all the actions that he did. What does he do? He refers to Esau and Jacob. You know who Esau and Jacob were. They were brothers. They were twins. And he says, Jacob I loved. Esau, I did not love him like I loved Jacob. He goes to God's sovereign election, his mercy in choosing Jacob. Jacob wasn't any worthier. There was nothing inherently good about Jacob that would make him a better choice than Esau. He's letting Jacob know, I have chosen to love you and make you part of my family. That's how I've shown my love for you. I've adopted you. I will save you. I'll draw you to myself. You know, Esau was destroyed. Their land was like the desert. But not so with Jacob. I've preserved you. I've loved you. So God goes, now listen, I know there's a lot of questions about sovereign election and mercy. But God is using that as an example, to prove to you, I have loved you, and I love you deeply. Do you, do you feel that love of God? Uh, what, would you, what would he have to do to prove his love for you? Uh, what would he have to provide for you? Many of us don't feel like God loves us. We don't. We, because we often want to define what that love ought to look like. It may mean financial security. It may mean a marriage. It may mean a better relationship. It may mean better health. How have you defined 
for God to love you. And here's the problem. When we don't think God loves us, what happens is our hearts grow a little cold and we begin to wander away. But God has chosen to say, no, 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 I've elected you before the foundations of the world. I've chosen you to be with me forever. This is what God thinks is a better deal than a new house, than pure health, to a great job, to a perfect marriage. He thinks that him choosing you to be in his family is a better deal for you. Do you feel that? God wants to be, remember this, God uh, wants people that love him, that understand his love. So he's chosen us, but he has secured the election. He has secured our salvation by giving us Christ. So Christ, you know, that's what Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize that not only have you been elect unto God, those who have faith in Christ, but God has secured your salvation through the death and the resurrection of his son. So if you wonder how God loves you, or if you wonder if God loves you, before you look at the circumstances of your life, look to the son that he has furnished for you to be with him forever. <clears throat> J.C. Ryle did this, he says, in light of the cross, the greatest insult you can give to God is to doubt his love for you. Now listen, we all doubt. Doubt is commensurate with faith. It, it works alongside faith. But when we are met with doubt, that's when we go back to, no, but I know he loves me because he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So here God is trying to revive the people and he starts with, I've loved you. And for us on this side of the cross, we know the reality. Do you dwell on that? This is why Paul says, I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Because there's no better way to remind ourselves that he loves us. Listen, everything good is temporal. Everything bad is temporal. The circumstances of this life, they may give some indication of God's general care for the world, but when he wants to tell you he loves you, he furnishes a son for you to know him and love him forever. Don't miss that. Don't be caught up in that which is right in front. There's something bigger at play. So it's the first thing God does to revive us, to wake us up. He tells us, I've loved you. But then secondly, because he loves us, he's now going to instruct. He has a dispute with the people of God. So he has these people of God. He's regathered them to the nation of Israel, to, the, to, the, to Jerusalem. Malachi is there. He says, I have an issue with you. Now, listen, we don't discipline the child five doors down. God speaks to his own children about discipline, and he's bringing discipline to them. Now listen, there's a number of disputes that God has. I'll cover four of them, and I want to go through them, I want to go through them slowly. And here's why. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to bridge the gap that I spoke about. Listen, many of you look very religious. I'll just say that. That's not a criticism. You just look religious. We come here every week. We dress a certain way. We carry our Bibles. We, that's, that's all good and fine. But God is going to now look at the heart of these religious people. And he's going to show where the gap is. It's easy to be religious. It's different to be a child of God who loves him. He's going to show the gap here. So look with me in chapter 1, verse 6, because the first thing he does is they had a failure to genuinely worship God. They were failing to genuinely worship God. They were coming to the temple. They were going to church, as it were, but they failed to worship. You say, but they're going to church. Well, look at what he says in verse 6. I'll read through 10. 
If I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? But you say, again, he's putting their words now, making them audible. But you say, how have we despised your name? God answers, by offering polluted food upon my altar. You ask, how have we defiled you? He answers, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? What he's saying here is he's taking the people of God to task for a false worship, a half-hearted worship. Listen, everybody knew that the law required an unblemished animal to be sacrificed. The best of the flock. Why? Because you give a gift according to the greatness of the person receiving it. And so if God is great, you give him your best. If he's not so great, you don't give him your best. You give him whatever you have left over. That's what they were doing. They were giving leftovers. They were giving diseased animals. They were giving damaged animals. They were giving the things that they had no more use for. They were just giving what they didn't need. You know, it may be like you. Around Christmas, you get three new shirts, and so you get rid of those old shirts that are kind of torn, a little ripped, a little worn. If you gave them, we take them to goodwill. You don't see who receives them. But how would you feel about giving a really crummy piece, you know, a crummy shirt to some person and you look at them in their eye? Would it make them feel good? It would make them feel good and it would declare their worth in your eyes by the value of the gift you give. They were declaring clearly. God wasn't very valuable. Ah, give them that one. We don't need that one anymore. Why don't you give it to God? So he's calling them out for this half-hearted worship. And not only that, he's calling them out because they were even bothered to do just that. Look in 13. He says, but you say, again, he's giving them what they're thinking. What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, they're complaining about what they have to do. They're, you know, they're looking at worship as a burden. Now listen, if you don't have a deep, growing love for God, Going to church and walking out the religious observances that you practice for 20, 25 years, it is a burden. It's a pain in the neck. It's like being in a marriage with a person for 25 years and there's no love between you. To continue to walk out the covenant of marriage is a difficult thing. Without a true love for God, being religious is a hassle and a burden and it's wearying. And that's what he's showing them. But let me ask you, because we're supposed to kind of look at ourselves here. Uh, do you think worship is a chore? Uh, coming here to offer God your praise, is that wearying to you? Do you come kind of unengaged? Do you come tired? Do you come kind of bored? And this isn't about what kind of preacher I am or what kind, of, what kind of music we have up here. This is just between you and God. But God knows what you say. And so when you come, do you come with, well, I didn't go last week, I better go this week. You know, well, God expects me to come. That's the way I used to come. Hey, I'll be very straight up with you. Uh, when I was in high school and college, I would go to church, and I was raised in a Catholic tradition, and so I used to have to go in before the gospel was read, and I could get in right after communion was over. And so I could sneak in and sneak out, and that way I checked the box off. And that way what happened is, hey, I went to church, okay? I didn't have a thought for God. I wasn't worthy about his, I wasn't worried about his beauty and glory and magnificence. I wasn't going because I was so thankful for him. I was checking the box. How do you come? 
Would you rather sleep in? What does it reflect of your fear and your love for God by the way that you come to give him honor on a Sunday morning when we gather? Uh, God, God is more interested in people coming that are broken by their sin and thankful for his mercy. God's not looking to break into the top 10 best loves you have. He wants to be everything to you. And by the way, he already is. He's giving you breath right now to breathe. He's causing your life to exist. So when you look at, this is just a measurement, when you look at the desire that you have to give him praise, that will be an indication to you of how wide the gap is between your religion and your faith. Okay, but he moves on. The next dispute he brings up is over their faithfulness, specifically in marriage. Look with me in 2, 13 to 15. He says, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears. You weep, you groan, because no longer does he regard the offering or accept it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? And God answers, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What he's saying here is this. Listen, you guys are coming to church. That's all well and good. But, but how are you being faithful in your marriage? In other words, marriage is a gift to us by God. And, and marriage is something not simply for our pleasure. I think it is partly that, but it has a purpose to it. The purpose of marriage is that we would reflect the goodness of God, his love, and his faithfulness, and his beauty in our marriages. That's the purpose of our marriage. What these people were doing was many of the men would just marry foreign women. He's not condemning interracial marriage here. It's not a racial issue at all. At all. It's actually a religious issue. He doesn't want them to marry foreign women, not because they're foreign, but because they worshiped foreign gods. And they would bring their gods into the marriage covenant and pollute the nation of Israel. But not only were they marrying foreign women, these Israelite men were divorcing Israelite women from their youth because they were tired of them. Just like we do now. Maybe a newer model. Maybe someone younger. Someone prettier. Uh, maybe someone that could put me on a different spot on the social ladder. And so he condemns them. That's what he says in 2.16. You see, for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Listen, this is a marker for us. Now, there are other scriptures. There are particular, there are particular exceptions regarding the nature of divorce. What he is condemning is a wrongful divorce where he says, you do not love your wife. You know, many people now, if they feel unfulfilled, if they feel unsatisfied, if they feel unactualized, then you know what? It's not working. I don't love you anymore. You don't love me. We can just call it the day. Remember, nobody falls out of love. You don't fall out of love. You fail to exercise love, but you don't fall out of love. Love is always a choice. It's just easier to love when you know him for a month and you're infatuated. It's easier. You're still choosing to love him. It's just easier. It's harder to love them after 25 years and you kind of worn each other down a little bit and, and you're frustrated, but you can still love by the grace of God. And they were not loving. 
So marriage, though, is only symptomatic of the greater issue. Their faithlessness in marriage is showing a faithlessness in God. Because remember, the purpose of marriage is to reveal God to the world. It's to raise up godly offspring. That's the purpose of marriage. And so failing in your marriage covenant is really failing before God. It's failing to fear him. So when you look at your marriage, when you look at the relationship you have with your spouse, by the things that you say and the things that you do, the way that you act, what would it reveal about God to those watching you? What's it reveal to God to your children, for example? You know, if you were to look at the legitimacy of your faith by the effort that you walk in faithfulness to your spouse, what would it say about your faith? I'm not talking about, hey, I pay the bills or I work. I'm talking about the covenant that you make. It says in there that God gives his spirit to them to make them one. God is a witness. That's why vows are made to God and not just each other. So, so what does it say? Like, Are you pursuing your spouse with godliness, with honor, with effort? I mean, are, are, you, are you wanting to cultivate in her or you to him a greater love for God? Are you wanting to repent of your sins quickly after sinning so as to reconcile and have a healthy, vital marriage? To the degree that you are walking out that issue of faithfulness in your marriage is a marker for you and for me as to our true faith in God. Not our religiosity of coming in here together, but that's the real marker. Okay, he keeps going on, though. You notice in verse chapter 2, verse 17, now he looks at the way we relate to other people. In 2.17, he says, you have wearied the Lord with words. Can you imagine God saying that to a people? You've wearied me. I'm tired of all your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? And then they ask that question, where is the God of justice? Here's what's happening. The people in Malachi's day were impugning God saying, God, where are you? Where's your justice? The Persians are still ruling us. You haven't brought forth a blooming desert. Where's your justice, God? And you know what he does to them? He turns it right around. And he says, where is your care for justice? If you look in chapter 3, verse 5, he enumerates these sins that they are not caring for. They're not caring for their brother. They're not caring for their sister. Look at it with me in 3.5. He says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who deal falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and all of his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. What God is saying is, you say you're coming here to church every week, that's great, but you're not caring for those people around you. You're not showing any sort of love for those people who need you. You know, all these sins that he's listed, you know how they would affect the community. I mean, when you commit adultery, you're sinning against a spouse, you're sinning against children, you're sinning against your family. It rocks a community. When you commit perjury, when you swear falsehoods, when you lie to someone or you lie about someone, you're impacting the community. When you, when you uh, defraud a hired worker of his wages, or when you don't work rightly for a boss, you're affecting people, you're affecting production, you're affecting profits. When you, take, when you are unmindful of the widow, the fatherless, or those thrust aside, the sojourner, these are the vulnerable of our society. Do you care for them? In other words, he's saying here, before you tell me about your religiosity, 
how is it meted out in the way you love one another? If that's the barometer of faith, what would it say about your faith? <clears throat> Jesus said this. I mean, he said the two greatest commandments is love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They are together because they can't be separated. John says in his first letter, if you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. You are living a lie if we have no concern for those around us. We're just living a lie. One author said it this way. There is, there is scant difference between being indifferent to justice and being unjust. There's not much difference at all. Don't let your heart be cold to the things that God is very warm to. God cares about how we love one another, how we serve one another. You heard Levy pray it in the prayer. God, help us to love one another. It is not easy to do. Otherwise, everybody would be doing it. But we're to be a reflection of God in this world by the way we seek justice and mercy and help for one another. The last one, he finally gets to where our hearts really are, and he looks at our pocketbooks. In chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, this is another dispute he has. I'll read <clears throat> verses 6 to 8. He says, Will a man rob God, and yet you're robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down blessings until there is no need. And you're thinking, oh, this is when he's going to move to asking for money. That's not the case at all. This is just another marker of the vitality of your faith. What a tithe is, a tithe is just 10% of whatever was produced or the product you have. It was given to the Levites in the running of the temple. Now he says tithe and contributions because uh, the, the accumulated instruction from the Lord is more than just giving 10%. But 10% is representative of our belief that God has given it to us. Now, uh, let's be clear. I mean, we can all be mature adults here. God is not heaven rich, cash poor. It, it, in that way, he's not shy on dollar bills. The purpose of the tithe is to be a reminder to us that he has given it all to us and he will continue to provide for us. It's a declaration of trust that we know he will care for us. When God brought the people back to the land, he didn't sign the deed over to them and say, okay, it's your place, now run it. He brought them back to his land to show them that it was he who was providing. He says, will you rob me? When you look, when God looks at your wallet, what does he see? You know, if you think about it this way, if, if you have faith that he has truly given you everything you have, then giving ought to be generous, easy, even fun. If you are uncertain about how much did he do, how much did I do, you're going to want to tend to hold a little bit back, hoarding, or maybe self-spending. It's all about me. Which is it for you? Because really, the way you look at money, the way you give it or hold it back, is a clear window to the degree that you believe he actually is caring for you. I'm not even asking for anything. I'm just saying it is a marker for you. So let me give you a test. Tomorrow morning, you, you get up, you go to the mail, 
and you have a $25,000 check from that old aunt that you forgot about, but she didn't forget about you. You got 25 grand right now in your hand. What do you do with it? Do, do, do you buy a new car? Do you go on a fancy vacation? Do you pay down debt? What do you do with it? What's the first two things, the first three things that come to your mind? Is God in there at all? In other words, is there anything that you would want to advance in his work that needs finances that would come to your mind? If, if he's not even in the mix, if you've spent that and then another 25 before you've even thought about God, that's a good, it's a good marker for you. You're thinking, wow, that's where I am right now. I am robbing God. It's not because you're not giving enough. You're not even thinking about him and money. See, all these disputes that God has, here's what they are. It's not breaking a law. It's not like I broke that law. They're all issues of the heart. How you worship God is declaring how great you think he is. So if you don't really worship him that passionately, he's probably not that great. You know, how you walk in faithfulness to your marriage lets everybody know and lets you know how you fear God or not. How you handle your relationships with other people and the justice you seek for those who can't seek justice themselves, it lets you know, it lets everybody know, particularly you, what you think about the justice of God or the way you handle your money. It lets you know how much you see the generosity of God. These are all measurements. So if I were to say to you that if your religion, <clears throat> if your true standing with God rested in looking at these four areas versus the external stuff that you do each week, if they just rested in your, your love to worship him and find him great, your efforts at walking out faithfulness in your marriage, your efforts at, at loving those around you, and your freedom with giving to those who need, if those are the markers of being born again, what would it say? Where would you rate on a scale of 1 to 10? I think some of you might be thinking, lower than I was when I walked in the door. When you use those as markers, it leaves us kind of breathless, doesn't it? You know, this book of Malachi, the good thing about Malachi when you read it today <clears throat> is that it really is a picture of the whole Old Testament. He says this in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, he says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and you've not kept them. It's really a picture of humanity. It's really a picture from Genesis 3 on. It has been a people that I have loved, that I have led, that I've protected, and they will not turn to me. They will not follow me. Now, before you think that you're somehow different, I just want to take a pause and say, we're not. The problem of humanity with God is not the evil in the world, it's the evil within us. That's why he says, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. That's a phrase you've seen throughout these minor prophets. He says, but you say, how shall we return? That should be our question. If you look at your spirituality, if you look at the vitality of your relationship with God based upon the degree to which you think he's great as evidenced in worship, the faithfulness you're exercising in marriage, the way that you're seeking justice for the oppressed, and the way that you're handling your money, if those are the markers for true and active faith, then we might feel in a bit of a corner right now. So what do we do? How do we return to him? Well, thankfully, he tells us. And this is what chapter 4 is about. 
chapters 4 about, he pins us in a corner in the first three chapters, and then he shows us a way out. And the way out is not for you to try harder next week. The way out is through a redeemer that's going to come. Actually, he's called a messenger. Now look with me. I'll get there in just a second. Look with me in chapter 4, the first three verses. He says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The, that day, um, the day that is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branches. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like a calf from a stall. So what he's saying here is, he's put, so in Malachi, so Malachi's audience, like you, let's just assume that you're Malachi, you're, or you're listening to Malachi preach to you, and you're thinking, okay, there's a day coming, and this day is going to be marked by a great separation. There's going to be some who are made into stubble, and there are going to be some who are healed by this son of righteousness who has healing in his wings. There's going to be this separation. Now, verse 1, look at what it says, because it's extremely weighty, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. I don't know what that means exactly. Is that literal? Is it figurative? What I know is that the reality will always be worse than the picture given to us. It's a day of dread for those who are apart from God. He's speaking to religious people and giving them this threat. So we want to make sure, where are we with God? We don't want to fall into self-deception as if, I know, I'm there and be surprised on that final day. So you see verse 1, you have those who are the wicked, and then you have those who fear God. And remember in the Old Testament, to fear God is to have faith in God. It's virtually synonymous. They have faith in God, and they will be healed. So to Malachi's audience, they're waiting for this day to come. They're waiting for one day that will come when all this will be reconciled. Now, we are on the other side of the cross. We look back, and you know what we see? We see something that audience didn't see. There was actually two comings. There were two comings. He did come once. Now, look with me back in chapter 3, because when, when God says, where is the justice? God shows them where justice is going to come from. Look in 3.1 with me. He says, I'll send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. That's the second messenger. Whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So when is this day coming? Well, of course, we know in the New Testament that it has come in part. Right? So in Mark 1, 5, you see this passage verse 1, and you see Isaiah, they conflate the two passages, and they say John the Baptist is the messenger who has come. You see this, of course, um, in chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So this messenger is like Elijah. So what does Jesus say? Well, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus identifies John the Baptist as fulfilling this promise in Malachi 3 and Malachi 4. So Jesus, this John the Baptist has come. He's prepared the way. Who has he prepared the way for? Well, he's prepared the way for the second messenger, 
The one who's going to come into his temple, which Jesus did. And who's going to purify. And who's going to wash clean. Now, he didn't come in full measure with judgment in his hand. He came with salvation in his hand first. This is why John the Baptist was confused. When John the Baptist was in prison, he said, are you the one or should we look for someone else? He was expecting the Messiah to come with judgment, not simply with salvation. And that's why he was confused. Jesus came the first time to be a refiner, to be a cleanser of our sins. This is what we need. Do you think you can try harder and be more faithful in marriage? Well, I hope you will strive by the grace of God, but you cannot be. You need one to come and cleanse you. This is the dilemma we have. This is what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is recognizing I cannot reconcile myself to God. I need one to come from heaven to save me. I need a righteousness that is alien to mine, outside of me, to come and make me righteous with God so that my sins can be placed on him and I can be forgiven. That is what this second messenger who came to his covenant, or who came to his temple, it's his temple, it says. He owns the temple and he's purified us. He will come again, and you will see that when it says, who can endure the day of his coming? No one can. No one will. They will be like stubble. That day has not come. We live in this interval, this gap, what I would call a season of divine patience for us to reconcile ourselves to the reality, I need a Savior. I need to seek his forgiveness. I need to reconcile myself to God through Christ and Christ alone. What Malachi is saying is to a people, he says, repent and believe. He brings all those disputes and leads us to a point of saying, I'm guilty. I have not been faithful. I am tight with my money. I don't think God is that great. And you know what? I often don't care about anybody else but myself. God, forgive me. I need to repent. And I need to believe that this one is coming, this messenger, and he will save me. John had the same message, repent and believe. Jesus, the first thing he said, the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the good news they're just carrying forth the same message through both testaments but now we know who's come to save so if you're here and you're a christian perhaps you've been convicted by these four different areas that god may have a dispute with you well reconcile yourself with god through repentance and faith repentance i said it last week it's like taking the garbage out we're doing it all the time it is a gift to us that is given to us one. That's why John says, he says, if, he says, if you confess your sin, that he's faithful and just, he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Avail yourself of such a gift. If you're not a Christian here, you're living in a season. You're living in an eye of a storm, really, the eye of a hurricane. It seems peaceful, but I'll tell you, when the day comes, I don't have to increase the intensity of the metaphor given to you. Lights double. Reconcile yourself to God through faith in Christ. Seek his forgiveness. Repent of your sins. Ask God to forgive you through the merits of a perfect son who has come to save us. That's Malachi's last words to all those people. And then it went silent for 400 years. Let's take a moment now and just... Ask God for wisdom on this. If you have questions about it, talk to someone who brought you here or someone in this church. Ask them, explain to me, how can I be saved? Then I'll pray for us in a moment.